1 Peter chapter 3. I'll start reading verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not to putting away the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. We live in a very wicked and troubling time. You see what, um, you just, you can turn on the news, you can read the news and, and so forth and see what's going on in our culture and you can, it's just, it can get you frustrated and get you down seeing uh, the, the, the depravity of man to where you don't think anything of it or people don't anymore where men will dress up like women and go into elementary schools and, and do all sorts of wicked things in front of children. You have the parents sitting there clapping and, and supporting the type of thing. Um, pornography in the public school system, in the libraries of, for, for young elementary school children. Um, ballot initiatives yesterday uh, seeking to uh, make it clear that abortion is not a constitutional right. And then you have um, sort of a quote-unquote, Bible Belt State, voting that down. And you just, you see the wickedness out in the world. You might not know it, but there's a documentary movie coming out shortly that makes the claim that uh, not only is homosexuality not considered a sin, but it's not condemned in the scriptures. The whole movie is supposedly an academic or an investigative look into how the Bible for centuries has been mistranslated. And the Bible doesn't, in fact, condemn homosexuality. And so there has been a movement for quite some time to say that the Bible has been mistranslated and the scriptures have, have been twisted to say that homosexuality is not only not condemned, but um, the Bible has no problem with it. And that's coming out. And you, you don't hear much about that. Well, that should be, that should be um, in the forefront, I would think, that people would be really concerned about. But it doesn't bother people. Don't care. So you say, well, what, what's this have to do with your passage? Well, the, the darker the times, the more antagonistic people become against Christians, uh, the more that you're going to have to perhaps suffer for your faith, suffer consequences for believing in Christ. That it's not a political thing, it is a spiritual thing. There is a spiritual warfare that is going about. Because you can't, you can't say that people who desire the, the blood of, of babies 
and say that's okay and, and will mutilate, physically mutilate young children and, and cut off parts of their body and, and mutilate them for the rest of their lives and, and condone, condone it and applaud it and celebrate it. That, that that's not a political issue. That's a spiritual issue. And to call those things evil and to call those things wicked is to stand against the ways of the world, to stand against the culture of the times. And you stand against the culture of the times, you stand in between people and their sin, and there will be consequences. There will be suffering. But this is not a new thing. This is not a, a new concept, even though um, it may seem that it becomes more and more wicked. But we are and have been in the, in the last days that Peter lived in wicked times. And Peter had dealt with wicked people and wicked governments. And he's writing to people who suffered under such things. And in fact, that is the context of the passage that we read tonight. So what is P what Peter is doing here is, is saying, I know that you are in a, in a wicked world. I know that things look as if that we have lost, that you are in the minority, that all things uh, uh, are destroyed and, and it's all over and your, your life is just hardship and suffering, and that's it. But our passage, in fact, is giving hope to persecuted Christians. To having them look to Christ. Because if you look simply to the news, if you look simply to the, the culture, you will get upset and depressed and, and those types of things. But our passage is to look beyond those things, to look to Christ. Because in Christ there is victory. So what do you say to people who are suffering? What do you say to people who are under the hand of, of evil and, and being persecuted and and Tribulation and trials are upon these pilgrim strain and strangers. Well, Peter says, look to Christ. It may not look like it, but there is victory in Christ. Christ has won the victory. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. Jesus suffered. You suffer, but Jesus suffered. He died, but he rose again victoriously. The resurrection is the key to this whole passage. As we look to the risen Christ for our hope. That is the theme being communicated here. He asks the question, um, who can harm you? And we get the answer. There was a call here to stand firm, to give an answer, to give a defense, and fear God and not follow man. Verse 13, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness, happy are you. Who can harm you? Who can, who can defeat us? We say, um, a lot of people can harm me. I could be persecuted and be harmed. Someone could uh, beat me up. Someone could shoot me for... Um, because they're angry at me. Somebody, you know, somebody can harm me. But Peter says, but can they harm me? They can kill the body. They can hurt the body. But they cannot touch the soul. 
who can harm us? Who, who really can touch us? Is the question he asks. But you look around and you say, but look at all that's going wrong. Well, Peter brings us back to remind us where our victory is, and that is in Christ. The encouragement that we have is that we have the risen Christ within. So all the way back to the beginning. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 3, which hath abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that was the very first chord in this um, epistle that has rung out and has reverberated all the way through the chapters that we have faith in the risen Christ. The only begotten of the Father who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Who can harm us if we are serving the risen Christ? Who can defeat us if we are hidden in and protected by the risen Christ? So that's what the theme of this passage is. Now when we read that, the controversial part of the passage I read kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the rest of the text, uh, we might say, because that's the part we focus on naturally because that's a, a curious passage. That so we read it and, and we wonder, well, what's Peter mean by this? And you know, what's the prison? And who are those spirits there? And, and what's it talking about? Jesus preaching to, those, to them and so forth. As I uh, read about this, one commentator said there's something like 180 different variations of interpretations about these passages. Um, and so no matter what you might think about this, there's, there's probably a book out there written that would, that would support that position. There's just, this is a difficult text. And there's no problem with saying this is a difficult text because not all passages of Scripture are equally easy to be understood. So I kind of laugh whenever Peter writes that Paul writes things sometimes that are hard to be understood. Well, Peter, Peter um, can do the same, which is, um, which is what we have here. So we understand what he's saying, but um, it is a difficult text, and we just, um, we just recognize that. And that's, that's not a problem to, to say, well, there's a lot of different interpretations of that. But the main thrust of this, and what we cannot and must not look over, is these verses must somehow apply to the theme that Peter was pointing across. The, the verses and the examples of Noah and the ark and baptism and, and all those things are illustrations to point to the theme that Peter is driving at. And just as we've seen in chapter 3, I think three other times, that Peter goes back to the Old Testament, picks up a specific instance of something that happens in the Old Testament, and, and uses that theme and shows how that in the Old Testament was ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. And, and how we can look to the Old Testament, see how it was pointing to Christ, and then understand how that is is encouraging for us as God's people today. So we have to keep that in mind. But the point here was not to go off on a rabbit trail, but Peter says this about Noah and about Jesus preaching and, and um, all these things 
to support the theme that he was talking about. So an illustration, or going back to the Old Testament here, is used to either, it's either going to prove a point through the Scripture or support a point that Peter is already making by the Scriptures. So the inspired writers don't get uh, distracted. I get distracted uh, sometimes. Right? You know, I'll think of something while I'm preaching and I'll, I might get distracted or go off on a, on a tangent. I try not to, but I do that. Well, look, Peter doesn't do it in, in these writings. He might have done it, or no doubt he did it as a man, but as he was moved by the Holy Spirit in this, um, he, he is not going off on a tangent. What he's saying here supports um, the theme in which he is drawing out. So the first thing I want to do, and you know that might all that might be all we get to tonight. I don't know, but uh, the first thing we want to look at is how the section starts and how it ends. All right. So let's let's think about really just this section that we've looked at the last couple weeks. So in chapter two, in verse eleven and twelve. Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here is the call to live godly in a wicked world. And living godly in a wicked world will bring upon you suffering. And then he goes into being submissive. And he tells them, starting in verse 13, to submit to the ordinances of man, to the government. Then he goes on and says, be submissive to your uh, servants, submissive to your masters. Uh, in chapter 3, wives be in subjection to your husband. Even though uh, they may, even though they're not perfect, despite that fact, you are still to live in submission. Well, then he goes on in chapter number 3 and in verse number 10 telling us how we are to do that. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Bringing, quoting Psalm 34, which we saw that David wrote Psalm 34 as he was the Lord's anointed who was suffering for righteousness sake. He was exiled. He was a king but living under the rule of a wicked tyrant. Even though he had the blessing of God, was living under the, the rule of a wicked, a wicked man who was trying to kill him, suffering for righteousness' sake. Which reminds us that what Peter told us in chapter 2, that we are kings and priests. So we are suffering, even though that we are in Christ, kings and priests. Even though the God has blessed us, we are still living under the, in the realm of this uh, wicked world. David was the leader of a people, and they suffered for following. And David connected that Passover lamb in Psalm 34 to his suffering, which he pointed to Christ, as we saw. And then Peter, in uh, chapter 3, and verse 14, If you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, which we saw was from Isaiah chapter 8 where the people of God had the promises of God. They looked for God to answer and keep his covenant promises, that they were a just and faithful remnant, even though the king was 
not following God and the rulers were not following God and the great men and the wise men and the priests were not following God. Uh, even though they were facing persecution, they were facing the judgment of God, God was faithful to his promise. And he said, don't be afraid. Trust in me. Look at me. Don't be afraid. You're going to suffer, but don't be afraid. You're outnumbered, but don't be afraid. It looks like the wicked is in, wicked people are in control, but don't be afraid. And so Peter takes that from Isaiah 8, applies it to the people of God today, and tells them to trust in God. Look to him. That you are blessed. Now if the Christians say, well, that's not fair to suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter says, well, look to Jesus. Because this is the second of three times that Peter points us to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. To point to either as our example or a motivation to holiness. Chapter 2, for herein to recall, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Chapter 3, and verse 18, for Christ also has suffered once the sins for the just for the unjust. And then chapter number 4, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So, Peter is, is pointing us back to the Old Testament to see examples of how those people in the Old Testament suffered and, said, and tells us to take heart, to be encouraged, uh, for we must also suffer. And said, don't think it a strange thing, because your Lord also suffered. We are to live godly in this present world, based on Christ's example, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 21. And we are to submit. So don't miss this connection. Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Chapter 2, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Verse 5. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also trusted and adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Be in subject. Be subjection. Wicked governments, bad masters, husbands who don't obey the word. But now look in verse 22. Talking about Jesus who has gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You see how, the, how it's shifted. People of God, you must be in subjection. Because that's what God would have us to do. But look to the Lord Jesus. Who now, at the right hand of God, would have the angels and authorities and the powers and the governments and, the, and those who are in authority are made subject unto him. The risen Christ will make his enemies his footstool. We are on the winning side. So after a whole chapter and a half of, of, of this, um, or uh, yeah, a whole chapter and a half of this submission and being humble and, and 
not being rebel rousers, but obeying the, the, the laws of the land to, that we might glorify Christ in our body, Peter reminds us that our Lord is the King of kings. And our Lord will rule and reign. Our, our Lord has rose from the dead and is at the right hand of God. And you go through the Old Testament and read about the right hand of God, the power and the authority that that, that brings with it, that, that the demons, the angels, the, the principalities and powers of the unseen realm, um, even the, uh, the powers of this world in kings uh, will be made or being made subject unto him. Take heart. We have the victory in Christ. So we look around this world and we see all the things that are going on. You say people just are mad with power. They do whatever they want. They, they break the law. If you got enough money, you break the law. If you, got, if you know the right people, you can do whatever you want. Nothing happens. You better not break the law, but you know, if you got enough pull, you can do whatever you want. And, and you can see um, injustice and, and wickedness and thievery going on. But, but Peter reminds us that that's only a temporary thing. Our Lord has won the victory. He is in the right hand of the Father. So take heart. Though we are the people of God, we suffer. Though we are kings and priests in Christ, we submit. For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So the same Lord who is at the right hand of the Father hath once suffered for sins. Christ was the just one living perfect and being perfect. And we're pointed to Christ in chapter 1 after being told to be holy like he is holy to see the value of his death to motivate us to holiness and to leave us an example as we read. Christ perfectly and exactly and entirely and perpetually kept the law. He submitted to the will of the Father as our suffering substitute. He was made a curse for us. He submitted unto every ordinance of man. He submitted himself unto the um, unjust suffering of Pilate and the Jews uh, for our sake. He was made sin for us, though he did not sin, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered for us, the just one for the unjust ones. A sacrifice, a sacrifice of the substitute. He died for us. He was buried for us. And he rose again for us. And has now ascended for us. This text gives hope to us pilgrims. For a while we've been told to submit, to be ready to suffer, to expect trials, to expect tribulations. But here is the hope. Christ is victorious. Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And the angels and the authorities and the powers are being made subject to him. Christ suffered, but now is vindicated and victorious. And because he was victorious, we are and will be. We will live in glorified bodies and we will be vindicated for our faith and our trust in him. 
we wait for his coming return. And at that time, um, with our glorified bodies, we will rule and reign with him. David Helm says, for nearly two chapters, Peter's been calling us to the difficult work of submitting to ungodly authorities. But here the tables have been turned. All angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Jesus. Christ has been, is victorious. Peter intends in this text to refresh and encourage weary followers of Christ by showing them the final outcome. At the present, they were in danger of being lost in the fog, unable to see the victorious distant shore. But Peter shows us what our motivation is. He shows us what our hope is. He shows us an example of Jesus who, who has did the same thing that he calls us to do. To live in a wicked world. To be holy as he is holy. To look and to, to follow the, the ways of the Lord. And to know that God has not forsaken us. And we look to our Savior as our hope, as the risen and victorious Lord, to know that we have the sure victory. So, if we take that parenthesis out of the difficult part, and we just, and we just follow the logical conclusion of this, so, and read the first and the last. So, for Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Submission unto the God and to the law. Suffering, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 22, who's gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers being made subject to him. So you have his submission, you have his suffering, you have his death, you have his resurrection, and then you have his ascension. We are called to look to Christ. There is our hope. We are called to trust in him. And there is our motivation and our example in the grounds of our faith. And so now, that we know that is the theme. That's the theme from the very beginning of the book especially these last, this last chapter and a half. He keeps repeating the same things over and over and over in different ways, looking at the same concepts three or four different ways of, of, of holiness, of submission, of suffering, of faith, of trust in God, and trust in his Christ. So now, let's go back and consider the middle part. Whatever verses 19, 20, and 21 mean, it has to have some connection to those themes. It has to have some, some support um, of, of what he has been saying. It's not disconnected. He didn't say, well, now I'm going to throw in um, some, some random thought, and then we'll get back to the, the text. Because verse 18, again, has suffering, submission, death, and then at the end of verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus, and then the ascension. So this, this middle parenthesis supports everything that he's been saying thus far. 
So in verse 19, by which he also went and preached, or let's see, no, in verse 18, being put to the death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So he wasn't quickened in the Spirit, but by the Spirit. Now, if you read um, some of the newer translations, it'll say quickened in the Spirit, but there's a variant in some of those uh, new um, or some of the different uh, manuscripts that have it in the Spirit. But if you think about the context of this, Peter is not saying that he was um, that he was dead in the Spirit, and then he was quickened in the Spirit, because the Scriptures elsewhere don't say anything about that. But the Scriptures elsewhere do talk about um, the, the Spirit in the resurrection. That, he, that, that all three persons of the Trinity... Um, in, in different parts are um, attributed with the resurrection of Christ. And so, but to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit is talking about the resurrection because that continues on the theme in verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's talking about uh, the resurrection. Well, the next part um, that we look at where it says he went and preached in the spirits in prison. Or he declared something has been done, something has been accomplished. Well, who are the spirits and what are the, the prison? Well, this is where you start getting into the different opinions, and, and you know, this, this is what I believe this to be, and I wouldn't be mad at you if you disagreed with me, but this is what I believe the Scripture teaches. Um, the nature of the prison will help us understand who will be in the prison. That's what the word means, prison. And every time the word is used in the New Testament, it's referred to as a jail. And the only time it isn't translated as a literal jail, it's translated um, as a, a cage or a place for unclean spirits. Revelation 18.2 says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. In this case, the hold and the cage are synonymous for the prison. Um, the only other place where prison is used for the place of spiritual judgment by God is found in Revelation 27, where it says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So this is referring to the thousand-year period of Christ's millennial reign. Satan is bound for a thousand years. So this prison is the place of judgment for Satan and um, the demons. So the word here referring to prison is, the, is the, the hold of the spirits. Nowhere in the scriptures is hell, as we would consider, think of it, the, the place of judgment uh, for, for the souls is translated prison. The Greek word, either Hades or Gehenna, is, is the place either of the dead or specifically the place of judgment. Nowhere does it say that we are sent to prison or, or lost souls are sent to prison when they die. Unsaved people die, they don't go to prison, they go to the place of judgment. The only other places where it talks about a prison is talking about unclean spirits. It's talking about either the devil or demons. So, the, the distinction is very clear. So Peter is using a word that the other 
writers of the, the New Testament only use in, in this sense as to, in, in, in the judgment of God's sense as to unclean spirits. So who are these spirits? Well, I believe these spirits to be fallen angels. There's two other passages I think they'll help us understand. One is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Because it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them to, in, into chains of darkness to be reserved unto the judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah and the, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world, the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with the overflow, making them an example to those that should follow after. And so well, I thought you said that Peter didn't say they went to hell. Well, this is a different Greek word. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. Um, and, and so and, and this word is not used to translate the, like the fires of hell. But again, it's another unique word speaking of these um, angels who... Um, God casts them down into this place of, of judgment. Now, if we look also in Jude, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and their cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh are set for the example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here we have fallen angels who are reserved in everlasting chains. Another, again, the idea of a prison until the great day of judgment. The chains of judgment, also we, you know, again in Revelation 20, that, that chain, the old devil, Satan, was bound with in Revelation 1 and 2. So these spirits are a group of fallen angels who are now reserved in judgment until the final judgment appears. Taking these three texts together, we can see that there is a certain group of spirits who are now imprisoned. Those angels which kept not their first estate are now imprisoned. It's not the demons, because we know the demons... In the, in the Gospels, were, were about. In, in fact, one time Jesus came to a man possessed with devils, and they behold and cried out, What do we have to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come to hither to torment us before the time? So here you have demons on the earth saying, Wait, are you going to judge us before the time? It's not time for you to judge us. So they were out, out and about upon this world. But why would they suspect that Jesus would judge them or could judge them um, before the time? Well, because they were certainly aware of their fellow co-conspirators who had left their habitation, who had left their first estate, who are now in judgment and will remain in judgment till that time. So there are these spirits for some reason have been cast into chains into judgment. And they will remain there until the last judgment will be finally and eternally judged. Well, why are they there? Well, in all the passages that we read in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 
there was two things in common. You had spirits in prison in both those passages. And then Noah. Noah was mentioned in regard to these, um, in this situation in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And both those, and the spirits in prison were both mentioned. Well, then when you compare 2 Peter and Jude, there's two things in common. These same angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. So Peter and Jude mention these angels. There's three instances. In two of them, it's the angels, these demons, these spirits, and Noah. And then the second and third, it is these same spirits and Sodom and Gomorrah. So these spirits are the same fallen angels in all three passages. They, they didn't keep their first estate. They're now being reserved in everlasting chains until the great white throne judgment. They are connected to Noah. And their sin is somehow comparable to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. So all these, thi- these three things are true. Or all these six things, rather. All those things are true. And so the only way that you can read these things and agree with all that in common is that the spirits in prison are for a fact angels that did something terrible in the days of Noah while he was preparing the ark. And because of that great sin, because of their great iniquity, they were cast into a, in a judgment, a prison, as it were, until the final judgment. So there was a line that could not, should not be crossed, and they crossed it. Of all the wicked and evil things that the demons and Satan has done, um, these particular angels crossed a line that warranted God to bring immediate judgment upon them and cast them into these chains. So whatever they did, it must have been really, really bad. You think about all the things they are doing and have done, Satan hindering the work of the gospel, blinding the minds of the unbelievers, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils fill this world, uh, demon possession, sickness, disease, temptation, adversity, murder, all these terrible things. And yet these spirits did something that outstripped them all to warrant this judgment. So what did they do? Well, Peter connects these angels in the flood, and Jude connects the angels in Sodom. So let's think about Sodom and Gomorrah first. What happened there? Well, there was a city of great wickedness. A city that was so infamous that thousands of years later, here in West Virginia, I can say Sodom. And you know exactly what specific sin that they committed and what they were known for. How wicked that they were. So God sent angels to warn Lot and his family to leave. The angels were there and the men of Sodom saw them and lusted after them and attempted to rape them. These angels smote them with blindness. But there was an unnatural Lust that drove them to grope in the blindness. In Jude, it says their sin was giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. So it was an unnatural desire, unnatural in a sexual nature. So perverse that of great confusion. So somehow these angels have something to do with Sodom. Now let's think about the same group in Noah's time when God judged them. What was the sin in Noah's time? Well, Peter says he connects that back to the time before the flood. Well, what's God tell us about the time before the flood? But the, the imagination of men was on wicked continually. 
And in Genesis 6-2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and he took them wives, all of which they chose. Now, the sons of God in the Old Testament um, are referred to as angels in many places. In the New Testament, it's God's people. So, you know, some people say, well, that is God's people start marrying lost people. But if we consider what Peter is saying and what Jude is saying, I believe that these um, angels, that there was some unnatural, um, some unnatural union found between the, these uh, spirits and, and people of this earth. Because Genesis 6, 4, and there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, they bare children. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So I don't think it's talking about famous people. The Hebrew word uses Nephilim. And Numbers 13.33 says, We saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come the giants were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Well, naturally, there's many objections to this point of view. But if we consider how angel, we consider what the, the sodomites did or tried to do or wanted to do to the angels, and we see how that the angels are presented as men in the Old Testament, do things that men cannot do. Say, so, well, angels are spirit. Well, how did the spirit uh, angel kick Peter in the side to wake him up out of jail? Or how did the, 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 the angels eat with Abraham? Right. So the Bible doesn't say, say that it, it can't be. We say, well, it says in the resurrection that they need to marry or given in marriage, but as are the angels in heaven. Well, first of all, it, it says that that's the way that things are. That's the way that they will be. But we're not talking about angels in heaven. We're not talking about holy angels. We're talking about these spirits who left their habitation, who left their first estate. So these unnatural, it's unnatural, it's strange flesh, it's, it's corruption and confusion of the, of the greatest sort. Consider what Satan desires to do, to destroy humanity, to destroy men. He was a murderer from the beginning. In fact, this was the only view and the only interpretation that you'll find until the fourth century that all the early Christians um, held the same view. And not that this matters, but the Jewish literature of the time also spoke of the same view. It's still the view in Orthodox Judaism today. And my only point with that is, Peter is talking to people who would have known this, and he didn't have to go into great detail about it because his audience already knew what he was talking about. So the Bible shows there's spirits and there's fallen angels and they're now bound in prison. And they were bound because they kept not their first estate. This happened in the days of Noah. This sin is comparable to the sin of Sodom. Now, Peter goes from there. And just give me about five more minutes and we'll, we'll be finished with this. I'd hate to come back just for the, for the last part of this. But there was a proclamation by Christ at his resurrection. So Christ preached something unto those spirits in prison. And by this proclamation, I do not believe that he went 
and preach the gospel to them. What I believe to be the, the interpretation here is that he was quickened by the Spirit, talks of his resurrection. And his resurrection declared something to those spirits. His resurrection from the dead declared that he was victorious. Genesis 3, 15 says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise thy heel. What is it that Satan wanted to do? He wanted to destroy the seed. He wanted to destroy the seed that would come and bruise his head. Because right after that, what do you have? You have Cain murdering Abel. Then you have the confusion at the Tower of Babel. You have the confusion with Abraham and Hagar. You have the persecution of, of Joseph and his brethren. You have the persecution of the children of Israel down in Egypt. You have Pharaoh's persecution. You have um, corruption. You have um, Hamar in the book of Esther. You have the Philistines. You have um, infiltration in, into the people of God by, by falsehood. You have eventually the, the king of Israel and the line of Josiah being so corrupted that God um, brought judgment upon them. Satan's plot and his plan through all of the Old Testament was to destroy the seed that would crush his head. And so, as man became more and more wicked, the earth has been covered in wickedness. I believe it was the plot of Satan to um, destroy humanity and to corrupt humanity and to corrupt that wicked seed. But as Noah was building the ark, the ark cried victory. So as Satan was, was uh, carrying out his, his great plot and plan, the like figure wherein to even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus. So this figure is baptism. Well, how is that a figure of the ark? The context is suffering for righteousness. And that there is victory in Christ. Christ suffered the just for the unjust, but he rose again. There's victory. Victory over death and, resurre and resurrection. Those spirits are imprisoned because they attempted to thwart the plan of God. And when Christ rose from the dead, he cried and proclaimed victory. That preaching was, your plan has failed. Every plot and every plan that has been carried out was thwarted and overcome and destroyed. And so while God was long-suffering and allowing the wickedness to go on, the ark was being built. God's people entered into the ark, and judgment came upon this world. Judgment came upon uh, the wickedness of this world. They mistook God's long-suffering as a sign they were going to win, but the ark cried victory. When Satan moved and devised a plan to kill the Savior, he thought he had won. But the resurrection cried victory. And so this pictures the death and resurrection of life by the resurrection of Jesus. The ark was a picture of Christ, and by faith, him and his, Noah and his family entered the ark and were safe there. Jim Hamilton says, The reality is not limited to the Old Testament. Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism in Mark 10, which means that Jesus described his death as an immersion in the waters of God's judgment. Jesus died under the full weight of the wrath against sin. The death of Jesus is the fulfillment of what Noah's flood anticipated. This is the judgment through which God saves his people. 
When believers are baptized by faith, they are united to him in his experience of the floodwaters of God's wrath. That's why Peter says the flood corresponds to baptism, which now saves us. Just as Noah was saved through the judgment of the flood, those who are baptized into Christ are saved through the judgment that fell on Jesus. And our literal baptism pictures what Christ did for us. And so Christ ascended to the right hand of God. And who's under his feet? The angels and authorities and powers are made subject to him. The resurrection is the focal point. That is the victory. They tried, but they were imprisoned. And he shouted victory. Christ arose and there was victory. The ark, victory. Baptism, victory. And this brings us back to what Peter was saying. Though Satan tried to destroy the promised seed, God had a plan. Though Christ had died, he rose again victorious. The victory is already won. There is no one who can harm you if you be followers of that which is good. Not Satan, not the demons, not the, the, the rulers of this world. No one can stop the plan of God. He, has, he is victorious. The ark foreshadowed it and Christ fulfilled it. Our baptism preaches it. There is victory in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus. So the, the people of God can trust in the Christ who overcame all the powers and the forces of darkness, who died and rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the, the Father. And so we're going to get tore up because uh, some, some politician somewhere does something to us or, or against us. No, we have victory in Christ. Look to him and have confidence. And, and we can walk with with joy and happiness, knowing that no one or nothing can stop what our God has done for us and put our hope and trust in Christ.